It's all right. Lord, we're grateful for this day that we can cease from our work, gather together as your people, and, and have you speak to us through your word, and gather around your table as your people under the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, as your word is brought forth this morning, that you take our minds, think through them, take my lips, O oh God, and speak through them, take our wills and bend them to your own, and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For in your son's name we pray, amen. amen. A.W. Tozer describes how we ought at all times think about the fact that God is omnipresent everywhere. He says, quote, we should never think of God as being spatially near or remote, for he is not here or there, but carries here and there in his heart. Space is not infinite, as some have thought. Only God is infinite, and his infinitude he, in his infinitude, he swallows up all space. Quote, do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? He fills heaven and earth as the ocean fills the bucket that is submerged in it. And as the ocean surrounds the bucket, so does God, the universe he fills. The heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. God is not contained. He contains. Wrap your mind around that one. <laughs> Tozer's explanation quoted one of the two great Old Testament passages on God's presence. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Jeremiah 23, 23, and 24. One of the grand texts is the lyrical expression of David in Psalm 139, where David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. All of God was present wherever, wherever David would go, not merely some aspect of God. God is present with his being everywhere. In respect to his people, where God is spatially present everywhere, he is especially present with his children to bless and to protect Indeed, he is with them and in them, John 17 and 2 Corinthians 5. And so David wrote, and we just prayed it, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Most of the time, when the Bible speaks about his presence, it refers in his presence to bless his people. And the truth for all believers is, all of God is always with us in every place and at all times to protect us and to bless us. And when taken to heart, this truth is life-changing. John Wesley, the great Anglican preacher and evangelist, 
his last words, his very last breath, uttered these words. And the best of all, God is with us. And then he died. Now I say this this morning because we're turning to Genesis chapter 26, where Isaac learns throughout this whole chapter that Kathy just read for us, that the best of all, God is with us. And Isaac learned that God is with him. And we're coming back to this in a culture that doesn't believe that at all. I don't know if you know, but the Oxford Dictionary declared that the word of the year was post-truth. The word of the year is the word that best captures the imagination and fascination of Western culture. And culture that is post-truth is one that elevates feelings and opinions above facts and truth. And that's a dangerous thing because it leads us into a culture of confusion. And a culture that values confusion as a virtue. And it's a culture that looks at clarity as a sin. It's a fast-changing world, ladies and gentlemen. Just ask any of our young people. Yet, the good news is that this passage blares like a foghorn into the fog of confusion. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, 26 rather, and we're going to see how it does sound out like a foghorn in this confusing culture that we live in. And what we see in this passage are three parallel declarations of God's presence in, in Isaac's life. The first was a future knowledge, verse 3, where he declares to Isaac, Sojourn in this land, Isaac, and I will be with you. The second was he was in the speaking in the present tense, verse 24, Fear not, Isaac, for I am with you. And the third was in the past tense, where King Abimelech observes in verse 28, we plainly see that the Lord has been with you. How Isaac related to and appropriated the reality of God's presence had everything to do with how he lived his life day to day. And so, my friends, it does with us. If you get this, it's life-changing. And so we learn in this passage some great truths for our lives. The promise of God's presence, our lives day to day with God's presence, the problems that we have in our lives in God's presence, and God's promises in his presence. Four great truths that we're going to learn in this passage. The promise of God's presence, our lives in God's presence, our problems in God's presence, and God's promises and presence in the midst of those. Well, let's look at this. First, the promises, the promise of God's presence in our lives. Verses 1 through 5. Famine was, and even today, is not far from Palestine. It's an extremely dry climate. And a year without rain 
would, by many, would necessarily would have to be on the move, and Isaac was no exception. So in verse 1, Now there was famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So just like his father before him, Abraham, Isaac pulled up stakes with the intention of going all the way down into Egypt. Why? Because the waters of the Nile could water all of his flocks. But on his way, he passed through Gerar, where his father had had an infamous encounter with King Abimelech. As to whether this was the same King Abimelech that Abraham met, we're not sure. It's possible Abraham at this time had been dead about five years. Um, and with Abraham's long life, it's possible, but we're not sure. But on the other hand, names like Abimelech and Phicol are dynastic names. Every general, commanding general of the Philistines was called Phicol. Every king was called Abimelech. So we don't know. Regardless of who this Abimelech was, Isaac was on his way to Egypt, the place where his father had originally gone during the famine, where he had misrepresented Sarah as his sister, threw her under the bus to save his own skin. And now, on his way to Egypt, Isaac stopped in Gerar, the second place where Abraham had lied again, throwing Sarah, his alleged sister, under, his bus, under the bus. And so it was there that God intervened in Isaac's life. And he appeared to him. We call this in theological terms a theophany. He literally saw God and appeared to him, and spoke to him. Verse 2, And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And if your offspring... And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Can you imagine how excited Isaac was? There's a famine, folks. He doesn't know how this is going to work out, and God appears to him. and gives him this wonderful promise of a people and a land. And there were two extra aspects that were quite attention-getting here. The first, the command of going down into Egypt was a substantial test of Isaac's faith because the famine was regional. It included Gerar. So humanly speaking, to obey God by staying in Gerar was to be in kind of perilous times in perilous conditions. Lord, there's water in Egypt, there's none in Gerar, yet you're telling me to stay. But God's word was explicit, verse 3, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. 
See, Isaac was called here to be a resident alien, devoid of legal status and totally dependent on the goodwill of the pagan community. And if he did this, God said that he would especially be with him and bless him. Secondly, this call to a dangerous, vulnerable sojourn in Gerar was driven home by a reference to the faithful obedience of Isaac's father, Abraham, who obeyed the Lord ultimately. And notice the five my's in verses 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Isaac, be like your daddy at his best. That's what he's saying. And this challenge also promised a distinct benefit. I will be with you and I will bless you. God, who is always present, will be especially with Isaac at this time. And so the key to Isaac's success was introduced by God himself. What a spiritual mountaintop that must have been. This is some retreat he's involved with here. And he obeyed it once, and he remained as a resident alien Gerar. Well done, good and faithful Isaac, right? Yeah. Watch. But we learn next, yeah, he's, he's present with us at all times, but he's also present with us practically even in our failures. Verse 6 is through 16. You would have thought that such an appearance with its promise to bless and to give him land would be a heartfelt call and would give him a great resolve to walk with God, right? Not Isaac was so human, just like we are, and frail, just like we are. Mingled fear with his faith, and as we so well know, a combination of fear with our faith produces lukewarm, lackluster, no more than just a religious person. And so what follows is awful. Verse you know, six and seven, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. We've been here before, folks. The local men begin to show an interest in his beautiful child, you know, childless wife. And so Isaac adopted Abraham's ways and did this despite his knowing of his father's failures. And he knew that Abraham had failed twice. He did the exact same thing. And so knowing that, Isaac was also disgraceful to the nth degree. It's cowardly, it's selfish, and it's faithless. And that's exactly the point. Isaac did not believe God was with him. He might have intellectually and theologically affirmed that and thought that, but it didn't penetrate his heart. It didn't penetrate his soul. And it didn't affect his daily life. 
Because if it did, he wouldn't have done this. He would never have given in to such an idea. And here, my friends, is a window into our own souls. It is one thing to theologically affirm that God is with us, omnipresent. But it's quite another to have it dominate our lives and to inform our lives and to affect us day by day, minute by minute. To embrace the sure knowledge that God is spatially present and more especially present to bless us and to protect us. That makes a difference. Recognizing God's presence crushes the temptation to compromise among our friends who don't know him. God's presence puts our fears to flight. It instills in us a confidence and a resolve. It protects us. It protects our loved ones. And upholds the name of God in our lives. Imagine the trouble that could have come to him if Abimelech had not accidentally discovered the truth from the window of his palace when in verse 8, they'd been there for some time, the text says. And in verse 8, saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Oh, it's up to the reader's imagination. Brothers and sisters don't laugh together like this. Wink, wink. (laughs) All right? The Hebrew word laughing is wordplay on Isaac's name, laughter. It leaves the details to the reader's imagination. Brothers and sisters don't have fun in this way, Abimelech saw. If you know what I mean. So he is furious by this laughing revelation. In verse 9, Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. It's a sorry state of affairs when an unbeliever decry the conduct of of a professing Christian. If you would call yourself Christian, listen up. There are a few things more pathetic. And we must understand that we are being watched. And whenever we don't practice what we preach or have a belief system among our friends that isn't consistent with what the scriptures say, you can be sure that a non-believer is watching through some window. There are times, I think, often, that even my dog Sherlock needs to be converted and sanctified. (laughs) We face such scrutiny. Even the way my dog behaves among my neighbors is a witness. The unbelieving see, and they don't ever forget. Oh, believe me, and you've met them too, right? I used to go to church until so-and-so lied to save his own skin. And they'll be saying that 50 years from now. Paul mourned over God's name being blasphemed and his teaching reviled because of professing believers' conduct. Romans 2, 24, 1 Timothy 6, 1. 
And he says in Romans 14, we must understand that none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. The way we behave affects one another. It's the way sin is. And due to his lack of trust in God, Isaac put his Rebecca, beautiful Rebecca, in the promise in God's in harm's way. And it was a pagan king Abimelech who protected Rebecca and the promise upon the pain of death. So in verse 11, he says, he warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. It's Abimelech who protects her, not her own husband. Thus, we're learning to see how desperately important it is that even the way we live our lives in our community is that what the way we live our lives matters and how important it is for us to see that God is with us and to believe that. Third, we see that even in our life's problems, God exhibits his presence. And so from verse 17 all to the end of the chapter, it's, it's, it's more implicit. We observe the actions of a repentant Isaac who truly believes that God is with him and he experiences real life problems and blessing. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are mightier than we. Isaac reaped a great harvest as he was surrounded by great famine. Isn't that interesting? One hundredfold is rare, but it's not unheard of in normal conditions. But this could only have been the hand of God, and the Philistines recognized it. His prosperity during a time of economic decline of famine made him immensely rich and powerful instantly, kind of like the dot-com barons, you know? And understandably, the Philistines became intensely jealous, and they resorted to vandalism, just stopped up all the wells, all right? Uh, well, then if he's going to prosper, we're going to stop up all his water. So Abimelech's command that Isaac go away may have been motivated not only by his fear of Isaac's sudden power, but also the realization that maybe Abimelech couldn't protect him any longer. So verses 17 to 21 recount a story of mounting prosperity and flourishing amidst perpetual problems. Isaac moved away from his antagonist at Gerar into the Gerar River basin and excavated the wells his father had dug. He gave them the original names as a way of affirming his ownership. And then he uncovered not a well, but a fresh spring, a find of unusual value. Predictably, the range war reignited. He thus called the well Esek, contention, and another Sitna, which means hostility. Isaac again moved further out and dug another well that this time his enemies did not contest, and he called it Rehoboth, which means room. For now, 
the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Verse 22. The astonishing thing here is that in a time of great famine and drought, he kept finding water. Clearly, God was with him and was blessing him, and now Isaac had Rehoboth. Room to expand, to rest, and to worship. Which brings us to our fourth and final promise. That God gives us promises along with his presence. So at peace, Isaac moved to Beersheba, where his father had spent so many years. And there he immediately was graced with a second appearance, a second theophany. Verse 23 and 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Note well that this declaration of divine presence, I am with you, was much more prominent in this shortened version of the promise than it was that it was in the present tense. I am with you. Isaac believed and acted with all his heart that God was with him because we read in verse 25, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Isaac is simply following his father Abraham's example where in chapter 12 of, of Genesis, Abraham built an altar after God appeared to him. And like the godly Sethites in Genesis 4, after God spoke to them, had built an altar. So there in Beersheba, he put down his tent stakes and dug another well. For when God's children truly believe that God is with them, there comes along with it a greater trust and obedience takes place. We can trust because our Lord himself said, Behold, I am with you always. You heard it today in the Gospel reading. Jesus says in John chapter 14, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Later on in that chapter, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered, if anyone loves him, in verse 23 of chapter 14, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and will come to him and will make our home with him. See, believing that God is with us brings with it that trust and obedience. That's what faith is. I don't use the word faith much anymore because our culture believes faith is blind leap. I've literally stopped using it when I preach evangelistically because they don't, they don't believe it. Because they look at faith, the English translation, but that's not what the biblical word faith means. Faith always believes trust in the facts and a life that follows that trust. Believing that God is always spatially and especially with you is a life-changing reality if you believe it. And Isaac believed it. So what does this bring? It equals a life of peace with God's presence. Verse 26 to 33. 
when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzutha, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that God has been with you. See, the first instance of the divine promise in God's presence was future, verse 3, I will be with you. Next, it was present tense, I am with you, verse 24. And now it is past, as voiced in a retrospect by Isaac's unbelieving acquaintances. The Lord has been with you. Now, Abimelech's explanation was purely a materialistic deduction. And I don't want you to ever think that just because I believe God is with me, I'm going to get rich like Isaac. This is not a get-rich-quick formula, all right? This is simply based on Isaac's agricultural abundance, his repeated discovery of wells during drought, his increasing influence and power. Imlech's conclusion was absolutely right. It was beyond explanation. God is with you. And today, God's presence in the lives of believers cannot be termed material as it was with the patriarchs in the old economy, but by a more profound research. God's presence will be seen in our lives as we navigate through the problems and the ups and downs of our lives that we go through as well. Friends, I've witnessed it among entire nursing staffs and doctors as they've observed the conduct of a believing family as a loved one is dying, as the Christchurch community goes in and out of the hospital or the nursing home or the hospice room, and they come to hear the testimony of this person's life. They come to the funeral and they tell me these things. And it's confirmed by their attendance at funeral services that God has been with this person. And the family acts so peaceful and calm. It has been with the grieving family. Now, I typically say, well, that's the way Christians are. <laughs> what is it that people see when they put us and our families under the microscope? And so celebration follows as Abimelech and Isaac and their fellows had a feast, exchanged promises, and they departed in peace, very much like Abraham had done many years before. Verse 32 and 33, that same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This is how God regards the life of the man or the woman who believes and trusts in the reality that God is with him. What say you? Kimmy and I were in New York City last weekend moving George and Rebecca back into Manhattan. I'm still tired. You know, and I had the privilege of going to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I had never been there. People told Tim Keller that he was absolutely crazy to plant a church in Manhattan. The year was 
it was the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic that was going on in the culture. Violent crime rates had never been higher. And the spiritual scene wasn't any better. Less than 1% of the island of Manhattan was an evangelical Christian community. Without a lot more connections, experience, and money, you'll really have a hard time, they told him. We'll give you five years. You'll be gone. Well, three decades later, they started with a congregation of less than 50. Today, their average Sunday attendance is 5,000, with four different congregations spread over the island of Manhattan. They've ministered to thousands through their organizations which they've launched. Hope for New York, which Rebecca now works for. The Center for Faith and Work, which helps professionals understand how I can live gospel-centered lives in my profession. And the church planting hub, now called City to City, where their goal is to plant churches not only in New York, but in all the great cities across America and the world. In the early days, it, it was described with one word, revival. People just kept pouring in. They couldn't explain it. Skeptics, hard New York skeptics became believers. Through it all, they credited God. For they knew God was with them. And Redeemer proved the impossible. You can grow a Bible-believing evangelical church in one of the most post-Christian, post-truth, and least Bible-minded cities in all the United States. And this past spring, when the congregation voted to split into three distinct campuses and launch a fourth campus, it wasn't an ending so much as it, as it was a beginning Redeemer, which has helped plant hundreds of churches in New York and around the world, is now replanting itself. All because they know God is with them. God is with us, ladies and gentlemen. May I suggest that? This is a Genesis reality that God is spatially all-present. There is no place where God is not. All of God is everywhere. And we also believe that he is especially present to protect and bless us, his children. Amen? Amen. To believe anything else is reductionist and or idolatrous. <laughs> True Christians, this is what we believe. And in light of these three incredible realities, I have to ask you three questions. Do you believe that God has been with you all these years through all your ups and downs? He has. Do you believe God is with you right now in all your hurt and all the adversity that you may be going through? He is. Do you really believe that God will be with you in the coming days? Do you believe that he'll be with you with whatever you're facing this week, this month, this year, he will be. And more, do you believe it with all your heart and spirit and mind? You have nothing to fear.
words of our Lord sing into our hearts today. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to command all that I have taught you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Let us follow our Lord. He's from Isaac's line. He'll be with us to the end of the age. And let us follow him with all our heart, mind, and spirit, and drink deeply from the well that he's dug, the well of our salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this such encouraging word that in your presence there is fullness of joy. Your Holy Spirit fills each and every one of us as your word is proclaimed, and I pray that we would know that reality beyond our vocabulary so that we would know that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore so that we too may go and make disciples. For that is our mission statement. It's on the, our bulletin, and we say it. It's not a trite saying. It's got deep meaning. May we follow you and make disciples, encouraging one another and others as you give us opportunity. May we be open to those opportunities in the weeks and days ahead. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.